This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the Products do what they say they're going to do on the label, and then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, 
you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Rebecca Ivory. Now, Rebecca began her road into medicine in the world of nursing before transitioning into the world of psychiatry and has just completed a research project within the Navy SEAL community. So we discuss a host of topics from operator syndrome, TBI, sleep deprivation, exogenous testosterone, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Rebecca Ivory. Enjoy. Well, Rebecca, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to Jeff and Catherine for connecting us. And secondly, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Thank you to Jeff and Catherine for introducing us. I'm really happy to be here. Now, where are we finding you geographically today? I am north of Seattle in the islands known as the San Juan Islands. If you haven't been here, it's beautiful. Have you been up here? I have not. You know, I haven't been to the Northwest yet. Um, I worked in Southern California for several years and only ever made it up to San Francisco. That was as far north as I got. And I saw that you attended school at University of Florida. Yes, so I did. In the Southeast. Yes, exactly. Well, if you ever decide to come up here, let me know. I will. No, I, I, I've, it's on my list. Absolutely. I'd love to get up there. Um, so I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline then. So tell me where you were born. Tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. <laughs> so I'm originally from New Jersey. Uh, only child, grew up with my parents, grew up in a um, multi-generational household with my grandparents also. Um, attended school, uh, Carnegie Mellon, and then I did all of my nursing education at University of Delaware. Okay, with the multi-generational household, you tend to see that in some of the Hispanic cultures, some of the Indian cultures. Talk to me about that dynamic and what were the pros and what were the cons? So um, my family is neither of those things, um, but both of my parents grew up in uh, very large families that were very close. Um, and so it was just sort of an expectation growing up that we take care of our elders and we all live together. And um, it was a great way to grow up as a child. I didn't just have my parents. I had my grandparents. I had aunts and uncles who were over all the time. We hosted both sides of the family for major holidays. There would be like 50 people in our house at every holiday, every birthday. 
Yeah, it was, it was really cool. And I grew up in walking distance of great aunts and great uncles who had hobby farms. And so it was really neat growing up in a place where you, you know, got to play in the dirt and benefit from great aunts, great uncles. My second and third cousins are like my first cousins. It was wonderful. One of the things that we have in our culture is, you know, this mentality of the, as soon as you turn 18, you got to get out of the house. Um, and when you look at the number of people that live in a house, usually in the States, I look at some of the cultures where you have the multi-generational household and it really makes a lot more sense. You got one mortgage, one set of bills. And if you have the space and you, you can, you know, you enjoy each other's company, you know, it really economically and, and even the family dynamic element actually seems like a much better fit than the way we do it at the moment. Yeah, I mean, as a as a psych, you know, I'm like, whatever sort of benefits people, whatever creates a good um, home environment for them and, you know, mental health and all of those things. But my parents live nearby, my husband's parents live nearby, um, his brother um, and sister-in-law and their three kids live nearby. You might be hearing some jet noise because jets are flying over my house right now. <laughs> um, but people, you know, it's really great living near your family if you have a healthy relationship with your family. And I think sometimes living in close proximity can create a healthy relationship. It can also create really good boundaries and setting those boundaries with your family and all of that. So, And I grew up in a house where I think my parents and my grandparents had really healthy boundaries, even though we were sharing the same space. Now, career-wise, what were your parents doing? Uh, they're both educators. So um, they both started as teachers. Um, my mom taught math, um, taught high school, and eventually taught university level. And my dad um, taught history and went into um, administration and sort of led um, regional um, education um, as an administrator and eventually was the CEO of a nonprofit education organization in New Jersey. Beautiful. That's, that's a great background for my next question then. Yeah. <laughs> Being English, um, coming to a different country, um, having traveled around a lot of the world, you see some amazing innovations in each different country. What I see on the downside in America is a lot of chess beating saying that we're the greatest country in the world. But if you look at our education, for example, the rest of the world would beg to differ. So have you had discussions with your parents on the state of our education system and maybe some things that they would change if they were a king and queen for a day? Yeah. I think my parents would really be promoting STEM education um, as well as the arts. Um, you know, I didn't really get into the sciences until I was in my 20s. I didn't, um, I don't, I don't blame my parents for this at all, but I did not feel encouraged in the sciences, even though I loved science. Um, I think a lot of women feel that way, um, as well as other um, more vulnerable populations, you know, people of color, that kind of thing. Um, and also some men just don't feel encouraged in the sciences. Um, some would have a lot to contribute to the arts as well. Um, maybe different perspectives on math and science. You know, math and science, when you learn math and science, you are learning a different way of thinking about the world. It's not just solving formulas. It is um, changing how you solve problems in your life. 
and in the world. So I, I don't want to put too many words in my parents' mouth, but I think that they would both uh, largely promote STEM education as well as arts education. I was having a conversation with a um, FDNY chief. He's in charge of training at the moment. And he was saying he didn't enjoy high school at all, which is pretty much my my experience. There's some great people I went to school with, but really didn't, wasn't, wasn't inspired and was a straight C student. When he got into the fire service, when I got into the fire service, I ended up being a straight A student in the fire side and the EMS and you know the, the paramedic side. And it made me realize it's still science, it's still math, it's still English, but now it's in, you know, a hands-on purpose-driven road. And a lot of us just aren't academic, you know, and my wife is in med school at the moment. She's great with the number problems and terrible with the word problems. I'm the opposite. Tell me, you know, you ask her how much, you know, friction loss in a hose line or how much, you know, what uh, concentration of a drug I should push. I've got it. But if you just give me A, B equals X squared, you know, it's, it's just, it, I'm lost. So it's interesting. Once you apply some of these academics to an actual trade or an area that interests a child, you reframe it. And now all of a sudden they don't tell themselves, I'm stupid, I'm thick. They go, okay, now I get it. Yes. My mom, uh, before they moved out here to Washington, um, the last thing she was doing in New Jersey was teaching math applications, uh, basically helping a um, trade school uh, integrate more math into their curriculum. And it was literally getting in there with like the building trade students talking about geometry, how to apply geometry, you know, refreshing geometry. Um, My mom was working with the nursing students, people like that, because we use math a lot and we don't think about it as math because it's become second nature with our, our job. But yeah, it's really important. And I think that that needs to be presented a little bit more in school and also at home by parents, you know. Now, what about um, athletics and sports? What were you playing when you were in school age? So um, I tried a lot of things um, between elementary school and high school, but I really found my groove in rowing um, in college. And I um, spent some time after college, trying to make the uh, national team, which is the Olympic team. Um, I coached rowing after college. Um, I was an athlete with some um, really big teams, Um, but rowing was sort of my jam. That was the thing I did, and I was the coxswain, so I wasn't the rower. I was the one steering the boat and calling strategy. Okay, I was going to say, you don't look like you're extremely tall. I just had this conversation with another guest who isn't very tall, and she was a rower, but, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense, just based on the height and the, you know, the yeah. position. <laughs> yeah. So have you been exposed to the world of CrossFit at all? Oh, yeah, I did CrossFit in my 20s okay. for quite some time. It's always just an interesting thing for me. What was your perception of how people row in a CrossFit gym versus being taught to how to row properly? I've seen my own, I will put myself on the block. I've seen my evolution from my ass hitting my heels on every stroke to finally figuring out, okay, this is more like a deadlift. And then, you know, progressing as a coach, as an athlete, but it took a long time because I'm not very sharp. Talk to me about a rower's perspective of the evolution of CrossFit rowing. So... I got into CrossFit fairly early in CrossFit's um, lifespan. (laughs) I was uh, doing CrossFit like 15 years ago. 
And so that was sort of before you start getting the coaching specialists in and they, and CrossFit ended up hiring a whole bunch of Olympic athletes and um, other folks who are great rowers to become rowing educators. So when I started CrossFit, it was pretty funny because I had to make a great effort to convince myself that I did not need to correct everyone's form. I was paying to work out there. No one was paying me for my coaching. So it was pretty difficult. Um, yeah. Nowadays, it's it's significantly improved when I've seen some CrossFit competitions recently and people rowing because the correct way to row is generally the most efficient way to row and also the least likely to cause you injuries. So I think people have kind of figured that out, that cheating on the erg isn't always worth it. Um, so, of course, we call it an erg. CrossFit calls it a rower. Yeah, no, it's been interesting watching. I got into it in 06 around then, so pretty early as well, before it was cool, as they say. Um, and yeah, just, you know, watching watching the the peaks and the troughs. You know, I mean, they, they've gone through this evolution. I think they've trended in the right way completely, apart from some of the bizarre sponsorships and politics that we've seen. Um, but as far as the ability of the coaches in a good CrossFit gym, there's been such a metamorphosis now. Yes. I mean, even Nordatrack has like a, an erg out, a rower out now. I think uh, erging generally is kind of caught on because it's a wonderful exercise. It's an all body exercise. You literally can sit down doing it. You know, there's so many great things about it. Um, but yeah, the nowadays I see that my friends who do CrossFit and if I catch a CrossFit competition, it seems like they are rowing much more correctly on the continuum of correct rowing to um, scary rowing. Um, they're much closer to correct rowing generally than the scary side of that continuum. What so. would be your your advice to people com comparing the the bad rowing that you've seen? What what would just be some of the kind of bullet points that they need to make sure they're doing on their strokes? To row correctly on an erg and also on the water, you're using your legs, not your arms. So that's a big one. If you are um, stringing your back, you need to use your legs more. Your back is simply a momentum swing. Your arms are a momentum swing. You're just finishing the stroke. Um, I also tell people to stand on their heels, get your heels down on the drive. I want you to stand up on them. Your pressure, yes, will be on your uh, the balls of your feet as you um, approach. But as soon as you turn around to actually take a stroke, you need to get your heels down. The faster you get your heels down, and transition your power to your heels and get your knees down and push with your legs, the more powerful your stroke is going to be. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, like I said, I'm still, you know, evolving constantly as I age, which is a real, you know, frustrating paradox. Um, all right. Well, then what about career aspirations? When you were going through high school, what were you dreaming of becoming? I did not know. Um, I didn't know even when I was in college. I loved rowing. I was basically a coxswain in college. Um, and I really enjoyed sort of Middle Eastern sociology, Asian studies. I was, was sort of an international relations major. Those are th things I enjoyed. I enjoyed reading about those things, writing about those things. I had no idea. But the thing is, is I got to college and I started seeing nursing students. And 
me as someone who had no direction, I was on the men's team. I had very few female friends because I was with men all the time. I was like friends with their girlfriends. Um, I saw groups of women who my own age who were in a uniform and had a sense of purpose and were doing things. And I thought to myself, I want to be a nurse. And when I got out of college, um, I did rowing for a very long time. I was doing rowing basically all through uh, my nurse, almost all, all through my nursing initial bachelor's degree in nursing that I started when I was in my late 20s. Um, so I was super involved in rowing, but I also fell into government work and I had a really lucrative job. And so I was making plenty of money and didn't need to think about nursing um, until the Great Recession occurred around 2009-ish. And I was laid off. And that was my opportunity to actually become a nurse, that thing that I wanted to do since I was like 18. Just before we um, get into the career path, what does the coxswain do as far as their own fitness? Because you've got to maintain a certain, you know, weight and, and you know, ability to to be part of that crew. But as you said, you're not physically rowing at that point. Do you row as well? Or did you, was that what, what CrossFit did for you? So as a coxswain, my main priority was being 120 pounds or less. And for me... Um, I tend to carry a lot of muscle on my body. So that was always really hard. I couldn't lift any weights. It was all cardio. I was doing um, up to two hours of cardio a day um, outside of my own practice. So that would be like in the nighttime. So also, if you want to consider what a college student is doing when I had practiced for like total of about three hours a day, and then I had spent two more hours, up to two more hours, depending on the day, doing cardio or whatever else I had to do. Um, yeah, I was basically majoring in whatever, to me, took the least amount of time. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, for Coxon, it's and it's also a lot of studying. It's a lot of brain work. So it's just your weight, whatever it takes to maintain your weight. Um, CrossFit helped, but I had to keep the weights low. Right. Interesting. OK, so so the recession happens. Walk me through your journey into nursing. So um, as I kind of already told you the story of, you know, aimless college student majoring in rowing, seeing nursing students, always wanted to be a nurse. I didn't know any nurses. I didn't know any. I had friends who were in medical school. My parents had friends who were, you know, surgeons. And I'm like, I want to be a nurse, you know, and I know nothing about it, but I'm going to go to nursing school. And so it took some time for me to find some nurses to talk to, friends of friends. They gave me amazing advice, um, put myself back into community college, start the prerequisite process, um, got into University of Delaware. Uh, they have a really great program, undergraduate program for nurses. You learn how to be a nurse, to actually do the nursing work. And that's what I had heard from other nurses. They prepare you to actually do the work. And so I attended University of Delaware, but midway through, I met my husband, who is an active duty fighter pilot. And he was stationed in Virginia at the time. And as I was studying for finals, um, I think I had two and a half more semesters to go. 
he texted me from Key West and said, hey, my former boss is here and he wants to offer me a job in Japan. Do you think I should take it? And I said, yes, you should. And he said, well, I think we should get married. And I said, are you proposing to me? That's so and, romantic. Know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Via text message. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, so that kind of derailed my nursing education. We moved to Japan for three years. It was a super quick turnaround. I couldn't have finished my degree um, and married him and gone to Japan on time. And, you know, looking back, there were ways we could have done it differently. But I left nursing school for a few years. And I returned when we went back, when we moved back to the United States, we kind of figured, okay, if I really want to be a nurse, I'm going to want to return to nursing school. This will, this will just be, it will do whatever we need to do to get me through nursing school. So we did, um, university of Delaware understood. They let me back in in the next class that I could get into and, uh, finished my degree, but the accelerated bachelor's program for nursing at university of Delaware, I think at the time was about 17 or 18 months. And it took me, I want to say six and a half years to do the <laughs> 17 month program. It was a very long journey for me. <laughs> now, but, okay. um, with Japan, I lived in Osaka for 15 months. Whereabouts in Japan did you live? Oh, great. So we were at a base called NAS Atsugi, which is um, sort of near Yokosuka. It's in Ayase. Okay. Well, so talk to me about your experience. I, I, By the time that I was finished, I was definitely ready to go home. But I absolutely adore the Japanese culture and there were so many elements of it. Not all of it, of course. Nothing is perfect. But um, even in the World Cup, I'm, I was watching the football and the fans were cleaning the stadium after the Japanese players. I mean, that kind of speaks volumes to the kind of people they are. So talk to me about your perception. I love Japan. I've never felt so safe in my life. I mean, I could... So my husband, when we were there, he would be deployed about six months every year on a schedule. And because of his job, his specific job when we were in Japan, he was gone for a total of about seven and a half to eight months of every single year. So I spent a lot of time by myself. We don't have kids. You know, I was there with friends, basically, <laughs> um, all the other spouses who were there. And you can't really work. Um, I taught English a little bit, um, but mainly I traveled by myself if I had to. And you know, I could go all over Japan and I did, and it was much safer than the United States. I loved shopping out in town. I loved interacting with, you know, other people in Japan. It was just so wonderful. Um, it truly was home for the three years that we were there. Um, I really can't speak highly enough of Japan. Yeah, no, it's, it's a beautiful, it's, it's funny. Well, I did experience a little... I mean, for lack of a better word, racism by some of the older Japanese people, because we were, I worked for Universal Studios when they opened in Osaka. So it was mainly half American, half Australian. And then there was, I was the only Brit and there was a handful of Europeans. And what was interesting is once they, in, in some of them, once they realized I was English, not American, they actually became very friendly. And I think it was something to do with that, that kind of, you know, monarchy and that the, the, the manners and those things that the English are kind of known for mirrored the Japanese culture. And obviously they, you know, the British weren't the ones that dropped the bombs, which is a big part of it too. Um, but conversely, the younger kids were all into American culture. So there's this interesting paradox between that whole experience. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, and yes, there is without a doubt some racism there. Um, I think every American has experienced that um, sort of xenophobia. Buck um, Asian. Yes. But I think it's very easy to overlook it and establish relationships and have wonderful relationships with people anyway. That's certainly not the pervading perception of Japanese people. No, exactly. And I think that's the thing, though, is nowhere is utopia. They all have pros and cons. But when you right. I talk about this a lot on the show, you know, if we if we shared all these great ideas with other cultures, we would elevate everyone's nation up. But if you have the arrogance to think that you've already got it all figured out, meanwhile, your children are getting murdered in schools and you have an obesity epidemic and a mental health crisis, maybe you need to swallow your pride, have some humility and start learning from other cultures. Yes, agreed. All right. Well, then with the nursing school, an interesting tangent, my ex is actually in school in a private nursing school here and i'm hearing you know not very good stories at all i actually did one semester of another private nursing school that was supposed to be parallel with paramedic um and they just flat out lied to me they weren't accredited they you couldn't use the credits Ooh. to go to nurse practitioner um they were on probation and then they had the audacity when i pulled my papers to try and charge me for the semester um so but CF here in Ocala, I think, is was the top-rated nursing school in Florida, which is amazing. So there's a long wait for that, but you will actually be taught how to be a nurse, as you said. Have you had any exposure to some of the kind of predatory nursing programs out there? Yes. Yes. I Yes. Constantly. I'm actually barraged on social media. One of my favorite things about social media generally is I'm constantly advertised. <laughs> go back to nursing school, finish your BSN. I have my doctorate in nursing. I mean, I have my <laughs> bachelor's degree also, like I, you know, um, really poor targeted advertising in that respect, but yes, constant. And when you graduate, you know, these predatory nursing schools will find your email address and just start spamming you, trying to get you to go to their school. I um, actually had a meeting with my former advisor from my doctoral program yesterday, and we were chatting about some of the predatory nursing schools out there. Um, I went back to University of Delaware for my graduate education, and that was one of the many reasons I went back to a brick-and-mortar nursing program. Um, UD was a known entity to me. Um, there were lots of really important other reasons, but I did not want to get sucked into one of these non-accredited programs and they market themselves so well. And yeah. And also like, you know, as a new nurse, um, when I started working, I started with other new nurses and the variety of skills among us was really interesting too. And that really struck me. It's like, who knew their actual lab values? Who knew how to make a bed? Who knew how to do like those really basic things? And you could just tell like the quality of nursing education really varies in in this country. And it's a shame. Yeah, and well, it's dangerous. I mean, it really is because as you yeah. said, they're all given the same piece of paper and they're all let loose on our patients and a diligent, in my paramedic school it was at the same college I talked about, CF. It was kind of revered and we had this one teacher that everyone was, was scared of, but he just set the bar extremely high. And when you, if you made it out the other side, you were going to be a good paramedic. That's the person you want arriving in a, in a rescue or an ambulance treating your loved ones. And it's the same with nursing. 
Exactly. I mean, the way I learned how to give, you know, patient injections, like we had to practice on the fruit and then we practiced on the fake thing. And then we practiced on a mannequin and then we were required to do all the flu shots at the, you know, university kind of thing where we practiced on, you know, other students, but we were already proficient and tested out. And then we were allowed to give injections to people in that clinical setting, you know, and that's an appropriate progression of education you know, and a lot of these predatory nursing schools just don't do that, whether they're accredited or not. And it's shocking. And like you said, it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous in the workplace. Absolutely. So where did you find yourself? Where was the, you know, which nursing arena did you enter initially? So I went where the jobs were. And so initially I was sort of in acute rehab. So you get people who, um, have like the double like hip and maybe they had uh, hip and knee surgery, people following a really catastrophic accident, people um, who unfortunately have like HIV and cancer, um, folks who have a lot going on. And so you're not so much just rehab, you're actually this sort of like higher level acute rehab. And I discovered very quickly that that was also psych nursing. And I was a nursing assistant for some time before I went to nursing school. Um, and I only worked in psych facilities because again, you go where you can get a job who's hiring and who's paying decent, decently. And, um, so I very quickly fell back into psych nursing. And then of course my husband, active duty military, we move. I found that it was pretty easy to get jobs in psych nursing and, I love psych nursing, so it worked out really well uh, for me. But I think if I was trying to do oncology or another specialty like pediatric, it would have been a lot harder for me to stay in my interest area. So with that that rehab position you were in, talk to me about the, the psychological element, because I can imagine if someone's terminally ill and you're looking more at palliative care, how much that might factor in versus it's a simple, you know, humorous break. It's going to heal. You're going to be out here in a few days. So I tell students all the time that all nursing is psych nursing because no matter where you're working, your patients are in there for a reason. And that is going, whatever the reason is um, for our specific psych patients They might be in there for psych reasons, but also people might have diseases and other pathology and things going on with them that impacts their mental health and how they feel about themselves. Um, And the role of the nurse, our our primary, one of our primary responsibilities, you know, patient safety, patient advocacy is also patient education and collaborating with patients on how they can essentially go home with this thing that they have whatever it might be, and be well, and improve their life, and live a better life. And so a lot of that is mental health nursing, because you are, you know, mental health isn't just the emotions and diagnoses and things like that. It is truly getting in with patients and talking about how they think about their problems, and talking about how to make better decisions and how to make their life easier. And so that's sort of where this whole psych piece comes in. And a good nursing program will talk to their nursing students about this, you know, uh, therapeutic communication and things like that, but it's all psych. 
And so I just found it very fascinating in my first um, nursing job, you know, um, I'd be in there, you know, talking with my patients about their medications and finding out, Hey, do you think you could take this when you go home? It looks like, you know, it looks like your physician wants you to take this when you go home. How do you feel about that? And then, you know, it might be a huge pill. And then I'm talking to them, well, this pill you can dissolve in water and they don't want to do that. So now I need to go back to the physician and ask and let them know that the patient has a problem with the medication. And, you know, it's just kind of this fascinating dynamic of working with patients and how they think and how they live and what can they do to improve their life. Well, speaking of that, another area that I'd never thought about, one of my friends, Steph, who came on, she was a, a firefighter paramedic, actually got hit in a horrendous accident. She survived, but it took her away from the fire service. But she'd been doing nursing parallel as well. And she told me about ICU psychosis. Now, being very immersed in sleep deprivation, which I know we're going to get to at some point as well, I took a step back and went, that makes perfect sense. You know, we have these people that need to heal and we heal when we sleep and we keep them awake with continuous blood blood pressure monitoring and lights and dings and all these things. What's your perception of that whole philosophy? So <clears throat> I haven't spent a ton of time in the ICU, <clears throat> not really since I was a student. So I'm pretty separated from the ICU, but I have a lot of friends who work in the ICU and I still read, you know, uh, we call it sort of delirium, delirium articles and different kinds of things. And, you know, it is not shocking that people develop delirium and other like psychotic processes in the ICU. They're laying down. They don't know what time it is. You know, um, generally staff will come in and orient them if they're awake, but it, you know, might not happen enough depending on how awake they are. Um, there's all kinds of things that are going on that contribute to this idea that people have some, develop some kind of psychosis um, pathology when they are, not pathology, but some kind of psychosis, uh, short-term psychosis when they're in the ICU. And um, rather than sort of knocking how we take care of people, because that's not my area of expertise, um, what I can say is that there's probably some things we could do a lot better to help people get oriented and get um, sort of prevent some of that delirium onset. I will say that a lot of nurses, that's sort of a top priority. My friends who work in the ICU, I have friends who are psych NPs who work in ICUs. And um, that is one of their top priorities. And, you know, constantly going and trying to have contact with that patient, even talking to their family members, they're, they're one person or two people who can sit in the ICU with them, talking to them about orienting the patient and talking the patient through some of these things to keep them, you know, um, in the moment, keep them present. Beautiful. Yeah, because the other side, when you think about, um, you know, what needs to happen, do we need to have... You know, the, the monitors beeping in the room. Do we need to take, you know, 20 blood pressures through the night? I mean, can we do some of those in, in the remote setting? So at the nurse's station, you can see that, but you kind of mute everything and turn the screens down so that they can sleep better. I mean, it just appears it, it, the sleep quality and the nutrition quality in hospitals are two areas you don't hear much about. But in the wellness and performance world, those are paramount. I, I will say that a lot of nursing programs are incorporating education like that now. Um, I got it 
briefly when I went through my bachelor's program, you know, starting a long time ago. <laughs> um, but nowadays we talk a lot about sleep. We talk about, um, because as a nurse, you have to be able to sort of coach patients on this and educate patients on this. Um, but we talk a lot about clustering our activities. I think new nurses are learning that more and more. Um, I think part of the problem with turning down monitors and things is um, not all ICUs have that capability. Um, we might, in the nurses station, be able to see the heart rate um, heart rate monitor. We might be able to see the um, a few other things, but we might not actually be able to see everything. I think with COVID, I'm hopeful that some of that stuff um, that sort of took place with um, IVs and things that were moved into the hallways and out of the room with like extended tubing and things like that, I'm hoping that some of those changes might actually become permanent, um, which I think would help with the beeping and the noise and the um, light in the room and everything. Absolutely. Another innovation that came out of COVID that uh, I had someone on, I it was early COVID when we talked, but um, cutting some of the red tape on the um, e-med stuff, um, the virtual medicine. And one of the most amazing innovations that I've heard that would affect you know, the nurses and the doctors as well, integrating that with the 911 system. So someone calls with what would be an, an alpha, very low acuity call. They are still offered an ambulance, but they're also offered a consultation with the ER physician. So if it's, oh, wow. you know, their first time parent or they just really ultimately are seeking a refill in their prescription or, you know, whatever it is, that will give them peace of mind. Prescriptions can be sent to a pharmacy that these days, obviously, you can get delivered now. And so that would not, not only free up some of the time with these responders and let them get more rest, but it would also free up beds in the ER and ultimately the rest of the hospital. And you now stop patients getting thousands of dollars of medical bills when all they really needed was reassurance and, you know, some, some guidance. I love that. I have not heard of that. And I love that. And I hope that comes to fruition throughout the country. That would be an amazing, yeah, that would be an amazing innovation. Absolutely. For people. All right. Well, then walk me through your journey from when you first entered nursing to, to actually focusing on the psychiatric element itself. So um, my actual focus in psychiatric nursing occurred because of my husband's, you know, Uncle Sam moving him around. Because again, it was, you know, my first job was great. Um, and I probably would have stayed there for another year if we had stayed here. But we didn't. We moved to Rhode Island. And then um, what was available to me, it was a night nursing, night supervisor, nursing position um, at a, another sort of acute rehab center. Um, however, they also had psych patients there on purpose. Um, so I ended up becoming a night nurse manager, night bedside nurse for psych patients. And at that point, I was starting to consider grad school. I was in my late 30s and I knew that, like, I love bedside nursing. I miss bedside nursing every day. But I knew that, you know, at a certain point, my body's going to get tired. My back was going to start hurting no matter what I did. Um, I needed to take care of myself. Also, I was just really frustrated by some of the care patients were receiving. And I felt like um, I wanted the opportunity to give patients care as well, um, at that next level. But so I was starting to think about going back and becoming a psych nurse practitioner. Um, but yeah, I basically entered psych nursing itself 
because of my husband, because when we moved, that was the job I was offered. That was the first job I was offered. And most military spouses will tell you that we are often taking the first job that's offered that has adequate pay because we're only in one place for X amount of time and we want to work and we don't want holes in our resume. So there I was. Now, talk to me about the impact that shift work has had on you. It's something that I talk about a lot. And, you know, when it comes to mental health, I'm sure we're going to peel that onion back. What was your personal experience of working those nights? And did you see the impact on your mental and or physical health? Yeah, Um, I think I did really well. I think rowing taught me how to sleep when I could sleep. And so I'm a really good sleeper. Um, which is, I, I really lucked out with those genes. Thank you, dad. (laughs) You know, I'm one of those people. So I did really well with it personally, but I have seen the degradation in mental health and just overall well-being and overall health in patients and coworkers who are up all night, especially, especially the moms who go home and then take care of their kids all day. And then go to work the next night. Um, People not getting enough sleep. And it really degrades their ability to make decisions. Their um, reflexes, just all of it, all of it is affected. And the patients who are up all night at work are the patients who generally need the most mental health care, unfortunately. Another irony is, you know, you look at the medical community who especially in the ER setting, for example, see people dying of heart disease and all these you know, related um, uh, diseases that people pass away from, you would think it's like the firefighter with the seatbelt. You would think that all firefighters would make sure their seatbelt was on, which is not the case either. We would have a daily reminder of what happens when we don't. And you look at a lot of doctors and nurses and there is a huge obesity epidemic in that world. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think the same with law enforcement, same with, with police and fire and, uh, excuse me, fire and uh, dispatch and corrections. A lot of that is not coming from, you know, quote unquote, lack of uh, uh, discipline, but the shift work breaks these individuals down to yes. where they're not even seeing it. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yes. I mean, obesity is a lot more complex than just calories in, calories out. People like to say that's all it is or whatever. Well, it's not. It is sleep. It is, it is so much sleep. <laughs> it is so many things. And third shift workers are, I don't know the actual data on it, but I'm sure tend to be um, heavier and less healthy than any other shift worker. I'm, I feel very confident saying that you're nodding your head too. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we see them and obviously we're doing 24. So we see all the three shifts and, you know, how many nurses and doctors you see out the back smoking after they've just had a COPD guy die on them. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's haunting really when you think about it. Mm -hmm. It is. We do not do a good job taking care of ourselves and prioritizing our own health. Um, It's something, I mean, you know, I just exited grad school seven months ago. And in the last seven months, I've completely changed my life because it was really hard to take care of myself during grad school because I was also, I also had to work full time as part of grad school. And then I was in a full load grad school. I mean, when do you work out? You know, I was going for walks every time I could, you know, I mean, it's just, it's really hard. And then we get into working and it's really easy to not take care of ourselves. 
even though we encourage our patients to do it all day. <laughs> yeah, my wife's in med school at the moment. She's doing optometry and, um, you know, she eats very well, which is a saving grace. But, you know, she used to move so much more and now she's hunched over a tablet for hours on end. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's like the grad school 40. You know, you gain weight when you go to grad school because suddenly you're sitting. I have a standing desk. And that's like one of the things that I've been doing, just standing up during the day for at least four to five hours. If I have to work for eight hours, how many patients can I see standing up? If they are on Zoom, I usually see them standing up. So at least I'm doing that very small thing, you know. Brilliant. Absolutely. Well, you talked about grad school. You're in the the kind of mental health field now as a nurse and working through your kind of academic ladder. At what point did you decide that you want to do something for the military and then talk to me about the special group that you end up working with. So this is kind of an interesting story. And I like to tell this story as often as I can, because I think other people kind of need to hear this. Um, So my husband um, gave me his, uh, signed over his post 9-11 GI bill. That's how we paid for my grad school. Um, He had to continue serving in the military uh, in order to sign his GI bill over to me. So, um, and we, you know, talked about things and we both kind of felt like, isn't this a great opportunity? You know, I'm a military spouse. I have access to go on base. Um, I know all these people in the military. Wouldn't it be great if I did, um, a dissertation because at the time I, was applied to and was accepted in a PhD program, which is not what I have. I have a different kind of doctorate. And wouldn't it be great if I worked with folks who were active duty um, or or veterans? Um, and it just kind of seemed like I had all of these resources at my disposal. And so I was accepted into a grad program. I'm not going to say what grad program because that's kind of not the point. I'm not going to say say very nice things about them. Um, (laughs) But I was accepted into this grad program and I told them specifically that I wanted to work with the military. And I had done about six months of work ahead of time, networking with people in the military, not, you know, um, getting completely outside of my circle and finding people through networking um, to talk to who were willing to basically tell me what kind of information could a psych nurse PhD student, like what kind of data could I collect that the military would actually use? You know, what did they need? Just give me a topic area, you know, because I could pick 20 topic areas, but um, first of all, ethically, I'm not allowed to work with my husband's community, which is tactical aviation in the Navy. Um, So that kind of ruled out my area. So tell me some other people. And I eventually networked to this guy who was at the time in charge of a lot of stuff for the Navy in healthcare. And he, he, you know, I got this email from him and he said, you've got five minutes, call me at this precise time. Do not call me a minute late. I'm going to give you five minutes or less be prepared. And so I called him and he said, um, you're the fighter pilot's wife. And I said, Yes. <laughs> and he said, you're going to work with Navy SEALs. And I said, well, actually, you know, Navy SEALs or anything. And he's like, no, no, no. You need to work with Navy SEALs. You need to talk to them about their mental health because they won't effing talk to us. And he basically hung up on me. And that's and probably why they won't effing talk to you because you're exactly, that person. <laughs> exactly. And um, 
so I talked to my husband about it and he was like, yeah, I think you should do this. I think that's a really, you know, see if you can do this, whatever. So I sort of laid the groundwork. I'd started talking to some SEALs. I had found some um, through social media who were willing to just talk to me and give me some background information and whatever. So I went into a program um, with this idea that I wanted to work with the Navy and I wanted to work with special operations, possibly SEALs. Um, and about a semester into my doctoral program, they basically told me that I wasn't allowed to, that I, that no one would ever talk to me. Who do you think you are? No one will ever listen to you. You know, um, how dare you want to work with this group of people? And it wasn't like, how dare you want to work with SEALs? We hold them in such high esteem kind of thing. It was very like, no one's ever done that before and you're not going to be the first and you're not important enough to do this work. And why would you think they would ever talk to you kind of thing? And this is the school saying this? This is my advising team. But from from an educational... From the university. Okay. From a university. Um, And I was pretty unhappy with that. I went up the chain of command, talked to the dean, and I left the program. And... Uh, transferred to Delaware, their DNP program, <laughs> where they are extremely military friendly to a point where at the time they had multiple Vietnam veterans on the graduate nursing staff um, who they themselves were Vietnam veterans. There were several military spouses um, and they did a ton of military research. They have, a, it's called the VCAT program. There's this wonderful veterans and students together program for um, integrating veterans into a university community after they get out of the military. It's, they just do all of this stuff. And I was just welcomed to UD um, to complete my doctorate there. Um, But my takeaway and my continued experience is that a lot of academics don't want to work with special operations for lots of valid and non-valid reasons and really bad reasons. Um, And I ended up going to a program where they were very happy to help me work with that community, but it was actually really hard. I interviewed at a ton of programs because I already had my topic and I wanted to do my topic. And when you tell me I can't do something, I want to do it even more. So, Well, what with that prejudice, you know, you said for good reasons. So, so what would they be, but also what is the resistance? Was it, was it more of a kind of almost pseudo-political agenda that was behind it? No, um, I know a lot of people feel that way. Most of my recent academic time has been nursing programs and there's no political agenda in nursing programs. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, you're talking about a bunch of medical people. Um, <laughs> but um, so there's a ton of red tape working with the military. And depending on the special operations group and the branch of service, it's really hard to work with them. So that's valid. It is, that is a very valid concern. I had the same concern. Um, What wasn't valid is this idea that that someone, a spouse, in particular, like a military spouse wouldn't be able to figure out a way to network their way into an organization like that. And then further that no one would ever listen to us. And whether we're a nurse, whether we're a spouse, whether we're a woman, whatever it might be. I mean, these are other women saying this to me. No one will ever listen to you. You're not top brass at the Pentagon. Who cares about what you think? 
you know, kind of, and they literally said that, but that was also sort of the attitude. Um, and so it's not so much prejudice against special operators. I think it's actually sort of a prejudice against military families. What is it that we do? Nurses, what is it that we do? You know, what can we influence that kind of thing? It was very upsetting um, because, you know, I don't think that I'm special. I think any of my fellow military spouse friends, I have them have literally lobbied Congress who have testified in front of congressional committees on housing problems in the military. I mean, who better to speak for the military community unless it's someone, you know, a service member, they're the best person, right? But in the absence of that, it's obviously a loved one. And um, yeah, so I was pretty determined after that to go to a program that valued um, military families and military spouses and understood that we could still get things done. So what was it that you wanted to study with, with this community? So I did something called community engagement. So this is sort of my specialty in research and um, instead of going to the community and saying, hi, I want to study this thing inside the community, I um, did something called snowball research. So I contacted some initial SEALs who were business owners, had that they were former SEALs, you know, had kind of been verified by other people in the community that they really were former SEALs. Um, no one super famous at the time. Um and asked them for 10 minutes of their time and explained to them I was a nurse, my husband's a fighter pilot, you know, I am in a doctoral program, I want to work with their community, and I just want to know what their opinion is, how things are going in their community, what are their community's concerns. And so I ended up conducting about 75 of these interviews over time. The guys self-referred their like referred their friends to me. I didn't proactively contact anyone except for the first three guys. Um, and I basically gave them an, an open forum to tell me about what was going on in their community. What were their health concerns? I said, yes, I'm a psych nurse, but it doesn't have to be, you, you do not have to perceive it as a psych problem. Just tell me what your community concerns are. So over time, I collected uh, what we call a lot of qualitative data, which is sort of themes. And the main overarching themes were chronic pain and trauma symptoms, and they might not have actually been calling them trauma symptoms, but they were calling them nightmares. They were calling them and they were specific nightmares of related to things they could kind of point to incidents that had happened. Um, they were experiencing, you know, hypervigilance and like different kinds of things um, that to me were like, oh, this is this is this might be a trauma symptom. So they told me that those were the things that were concerning in their community and over time, um, I that's how I actually formed my research project. Um, I did a, a research study, and um, it was 100% in consultation with the SEAL community, talking with the 100 or about 75. It was over 75 SEALs that I spoke with, mostly active duty, some recently separated. Um, they told me what they wanted studied and how they wanted it studied and what was amenable to their community, what outcomes they would want 
and what they would actually use. So that everything that I did in my actual research study were things that they suggested and recommended as a group, um, but were also backed up in science. That was my role in all of this. So they told me all of these things. And of course, like, you know, someone who isn't familiar with psychiatric science, (laughs) you know, might not know something's evidence-based or real or, you know, something at least that I can use in a research study. So my job was basically to collect all of the information that they were giving me and then go back to the science, review what science was already out there, what research studies um, had already found uh, that worked. And then I created a research study around all of those things. And once I had the framework for the research study, I went back to the community again. I said, how does this sound? Does this sound like something that you might use if it's effective after the research study was over? Um, And I did the same thing. I recruited for the research study through the community. I used community organizations. Um, Eventually, um, a SEAL contacted me, a a former SEAL contacted me and said, hey, I have this group of people. I am the president of this organization. You can recruit among my group. I mean, it was 100% through the community. I didn't choose anything. They chose everything. So after you've you've done this kind of um, survey, what were the the things that people wanted addressed, and then kind of walk me through you know your immersion in the research and what you brought to your own study? So there were some really interesting things. The first is that um, they didn't want any pharmaceuticals, which I could have predicted. Um, no problem, absolutely. So no meds. Um, they wanted something that they could essentially take with them. So for like a treatment for chronic pain and trauma or one of those, if not both, um, they wanted something that was a learning experience. And if it was something that was ongoing, they could take with them wherever they went that that particular group of people, they were all um, out of the military. They were all veterans at that point. Um, that they could physically take with them on work trips or wherever they were. Um, And they did not want it to be live because again, taking it with them wherever they went, meeting with someone wasn't always convenient. So I went back to the science and what I discovered is that in psychiatry, we get chronic pain patients frequently because as, as you know, people who have chronic pain tend to have some anxiety, insomnia, different things. And in psychiatry, we have really great ways to treat these things that do not involve medication. Of course, we can prescribe if you want it and need it, but we have other ways through therapy and there's different kinds of therapy. Um, the one I specialize in is more education. It's like patient education, like a nurse um, gives, but When someone comes in who has both chronic pain and trauma symptoms, if we educate them about chronic pain, what chronic pain is, um, how to sort of change their thoughts and perspective on their pain, it also treats their trauma symptoms. It does both. And it makes sense. Um, You know, if you think of maybe giving someone an opioid for, severe pain in like the emergency room, um, those people will have a much better pain experience. They don't care about their pain, but they also relax. And that is how therapy works. It works on the same neurons. 
essentially. Um, and so when you are providing this, this education about their chronic pain and you're teaching them what chronic pain is and that they are probably not doing anything physically to maintain this pain. It's all in the brain. Your brain is like a self-licking ice cream cone for chronic pain. It maintains itself. Trauma symptoms tend to decrease. So I figured out that I could treat chronic pain and treat the trauma symptoms Uh, The VA and some other organizations have released really interesting data about treating chronic pain online and how effective it is, especially among male veterans, non-synchronous. So you're not in a classroom and you're not meeting with someone and using technology to do that. And so I ended up um, using a mobile application called Curable. And I provided this group of SEAL veterans access to this app called Curable for 30 days. Um, I measured their chronic pain and trauma scores before and after. And I explained to them, you know, this is for treating your chronic pain, but they also knew that I was measuring their trauma. And um, I met with them in person. And if they needed a tablet, I provided them a tablet to use and they got to keep the tablet for, um, you know, for use uh, in the future. And um, the, their trauma scores drop significantly um, beyond what I expected. And what actually ended up happening and their pain scores dropped um, significantly Uh, Beyond clinically meaningful numbers, they dropped. But the trauma scores dropped to a point where, you know, the trauma scale that I used, the upper limit was 85. I had guys scoring in the 70s and their trauma scores dropped to like the 50s. Um, Every single one of the participants self-reported improved quality of life. but these guys intentionally applied the chronic pain education during the 30 days to their trauma because they had, were experiencing such a change in their uh, pain experience um, that they thought to themselves, I think it was six, two thirds, it was two thirds or three quarters of them actually um, intentionally applied their chronic pain education to their trauma symptoms. And they sort of credited their SEAL um, training and experience as what influenced them to try to apply the chronic pain stuff to their trauma. So talk to me about that psychosomatic element. When in, in paramedicine, you know, we get people with fibromyalgia and some of these other things that, as I heard you talking on the Stu Smith's podcast, you know, you, you do scans and there's nothing there. And so, you know, these doctors and nurses are at a loss, but this patient is like, I'm feeling this pain. You know, it's not like, yeah, they're not drug seeking. They're truly in this discomfort. What is the, the, um, the power of the mind, whether it's, a, a place in the body that never had an injury or a place in the body that used to have an injury. Talk to me about the, the role of the brain. If we don't break that cycle to continue that sensation of pain. So there's neuroscience theories and hypotheses on this. 
And the idea is essentially what we call the centralization of pain. So I call um, chronic pain sort of a self-licking ice cream cone, because what happens is over time through various processes, your body becomes hypersensitive to this pain signal that's happening, the acute pain signal, this thing that happened to you. And at some period of time, we think it's around 90 days, could be more, could be less, depending on the person. The brain decides that that pain signal is now a homeostatic process. And it thinks that it needs to reorganize itself to maintain that pain signal. And so what happens is the brain neurons literally reorganize themselves to a point where they maintain the chronicity and the actual pain signal all by themselves. And eventually a person's brain becomes entirely focused on the pain experience, their memories and their emotions and, um, you know, all the things that make them a person and make them, you know, a family member and a loved one, all of those things sort of get pushed to the side. And eventually all their brain is occupied with is maintaining that pain signal. And they are just constantly focused on the pain. And um, the idea is that we need to interrupt that signal. And there's not a lot of ways that we know how to do it through surgery and, you know, medication may or may not touch it. So the way we approach it in psychiatry and psychology is we teach people to change their mind and change their thoughts about their pain. And that is one way we can fight back and interrupt the cycle. And if we can interrupt that cycle, we might be able to interrupt the other processes that get pulled into it, which is like the trauma stuff. It all sort of becomes this package deal, right? So we have to interrupt the pain. And what we do is we teach people to reframe their thoughts about their pain. Because once people have chronic pain for a period of time, and you know this as a CrossFit uh, coach, I believe you're a coach, correct? So you probably, yeah, you see this both as a paramedic and as a CrossFit coach. If you have pain, you have, um, we call them maladaptive behaviors and thoughts. And what maladaptive means is anything that's maladaptive is something that creates its own bad outcome. So you have these thoughts Like you are having pain. You're like, if I do this exercise, not only am I going to tweak that injury again, but I'm going to have to have surgery. People go to that real quick. And then now they are, they have this behavior where they are avoiding that exercise that does that thing to their back. And you and I both know as medical people and as um, sort of like strength and conditioning people, we know that doing that exercise is probably not going to tweak their back again. We know that if they put weight on the bar, they're going to be just fine, but they don't know that. So in psych, we teach them to do the thing anyway, how to reframe their thoughts, how to fight back on those thoughts. And that is the thing that seems to interrupt the cycle. Among other things, we teach them coping strategies. You know, there's all these these other things that sort of come come into play. But essentially, that idea of interrupting your thoughts and changing your mind can you might still have the pain, but you deal with it anyway because now you know what it is, and your life improves, and also your pain sensations might decrease or change because your mind has changed. Um, I will tell you that 
um, the feedback I have received. So I'm now past one year with that research study. I'm graduated. Um, the research subjects had the opportunity. I gave them the choice to continue contacting me. I tend to not, con I, I do not contact them at all related to the study because that would be, you know, ethically, ethical boundaries. But a lot of the guys stay in contact with me and will tell me things like when I met them, they could hardly walk around the block. And one of those guys, I believe, just completed an ultra marathon. Yeah. Change your mind. <laughs> change your behaviors, change your life. And that is basically what happened with a lot of these guys. One of the guys during the 30 days hadn't slept in his bed in years because he was in so much pain and um, service-related pain. And he was sleeping in recliners. He had sort of the circuit throughout his house where he would sleep in different places for specific amounts of time overnight. And then he would wake up. And during the 30 days, he was able to go to sleep in his bed for the first time in like a decade. That's amazing. So it's powerful stuff. It is. And it's something that people don't think about. I mean, you've got, you know, the body keeps the score, obviously, is is one that really talks about that projection of, of uh, mental trauma onto the body. But I also see that guarding. I've seen it in myself. And it, it is something you have to work through and, you know, do it sensibly and incrementally. But you, there's a lot of, uh, I think there's an environment, even in the medical world, that... Um, encourages the thought that once you're hurt you're broken that's it you know oh well, you know i can't do that now because i had knee surgery or i had this well yes but i can show you videos of people that had all that stuff done that are you know crushing it these days so i think the pain that's attached to a previous injury can be very very limiting so whether it's psychological trauma or physical trauma i see the same kind of um wall there to people progressing through so it's really interesting you brought that up because I think it was two weeks ago now, I was at Naval Special Warfare, I gave a presentation to some of their human performance people on this topic. And this came up, this idea that in essence, it's super easy to fall into the mental traps of our patients. If they are having these like maladaptive thoughts, these like, you know, thoughts about, oh, I don't want to do this. Oh, it's going to be so hard, you know, whatever. It's really easy for all of us, whether you're a strength and conditioning person, whether you're a medical person, whoever it is to fall into it with them, because we want to relate to them. We want them to essentially like us because that's how we work with people. You know, if people buy into what we're selling, you know, awesome. That's how we sort of have these working relationships. So it's really easy to fall into their patterns with them. And I, we actually had this really um, great conversation about not falling into those patterns and intentionally turning those patterns on, the, on their own head. You know, if someone shares that maladaptive thing with us, um, how can we flip that thought in practice and counter it because all of us are qualified to do this, whether we're a loved one, a friend or a professional, it doesn't matter. You know, there were um, physical therapy folks in uh, my talk and it's the same thing. You know, there, everyone is perfectly qualified to say to someone, Hey, actually, you know, I've seen you do this exercise without weight. If you added 10 pounds, you know, you can do this or, Hey, you're, you know, your back is, I've seen you progress since that injury. Your back is strong now. You, I, you can do this. Let's, let's just take the weights off. Let's do it without weight a few times. And then let's add on 10 pounds, you know, and go from there. And there's just, you know, 
But I think we as professionals have to intentionally not buy into what they are saying with them. Now, one of my observations as well, and someone brought this up in an interview a a while ago, um, is there seems to also be a psychological element where people identify as their disease or their injury. What have you seen regarding that? So I will tell you that I think because I've been working with special operations forces so much, I don't see that as often. But I did see it when I was a student working with the civilian population. And I think that that is in part the centrality of pain idea. So that's a hypothesis. It's out there. I wouldn't be surprised if it became a theory. It's again, this idea that your brain reorganizes itself to a point where it pushes out everything except pain and you become hyper-focused on your pain. And this is a guess on my part. Okay. So don't take this to the bank, but I'm wondering if if we can break that centrality of pain, as well as the centrality of some of other things, whatever it might be, if we can also break the brain's focus, you know, on that pain, if the personality kind of comes around. I mean, I've seen that with, with people with pain. I have seen that with special operators, you know, they have so much pain and they spend so much time avoiding that thing. And it sort of becomes who they are. And I'm, you know, I'm not this, or I'm not that, that will hurt whatever. And then once they can sort of break that mental cycle, they do change. But I'm kind of curious if there's other processes, if it's the same process, I don't know for sure, but I imagine that it is. Yeah. Well, one thing I want to make sure we touch before we kind of go to some closing questions, operator syndrome. It's it's funny how you start hearing these new buzzwords, and that's not a, that's not a negative, but new theories come out. And actually, I, I want to make sure that we talk about um, uh, allopathic load in a second as well. It's another word that I've heard a lot recently. Um, but talk to me about the difference between operator syndrome and maybe some of the other diagnoses like PTSD. So operator syndrome is if you think about the word syndrome, think of syndrome as an umbrella. And inside the umbrella are a bunch of symptoms that we see together. That is what a syndrome is, okay? So operator syndrome is at its its essence, a collection of symptoms that are really common among the special operations community. And it includes things like cognitive changes, changes in attention, concentration, things of that nature, physical changes. Um, We might see weight gain. We might see um, prediabetes. We hear of really poor recovery. People who just, you know, they've been doing the same thing for years as as, as an operator, and they just get to a point where suddenly, you know, they're kind of gaining weight. They can't sleep. They're dealing with all kinds of sleep issues. They're angry all the time. Um, they're having these like rage, um, these like rage experiences, these rage reactions to loved ones who they love very much. They're having issues with their teammates. They're having issues at home. Um, all of these really particular things. And then we also see lab changes. So we might see decreased testosterone. Um, so that is the idea that the syndrome itself is a descriptor for all of these things that we see that are super common among special operators. And 
So, okay. So these things are common. So if you think of syndromes, you might think of a few syndromes. You might say, oh, that syndrome is caused by an abnormal number of chromosomes. Well, what causes operator syndrome? Because when you see a collection of things that are super common among a super common group of people, there's obviously a cause. And it's probably not just that they are special operators, right? Like that's not the cause. The cause is something about being a special operator. And what we are seeing is a few things. The first is that it is caused by high allostatic load. Allostatic load, and it's not just allostatic load, it's allostatic overload among special operators. Allostatic load is the accumulation of mental and physical and psychological stress over time. So if you think about what a special operator does, they are in these crazy high tempo uh, deployment cycles. They um, are away from home constantly. They're probably not eating well, regardless of their best intentions, because they're constantly on the road. Um, They have all kinds of stressors going on in their life. That's allostatic load. And special operators experience allostatic overload for decades. The other thing that's happening is new, the sort of newly discovered, not new idea. It's called blast TBI. It's concussive TBI. It's different than impact TBI. And there is actual research on this. Um, Some neuroscientists have discovered scarring on the brains of deceased special operators. And the reason the scarring occurs is because their brains are rattled around because they are chronically exposed to blasts. And the blast waves rattle their brains. And they may or may not have any initial effects. Like sometimes guys will say, oh yeah, I had a little bit of confusion or I was too close to that blast. Obviously, you know, I had some whatever. We don't know how close is too close, truly. We don't know how much exposure is too much exposure. Um, Canadian special operations and some other groups, uh, rangers, have really interesting data on this about blast exposure. But we see that special operators have that blast exposure. And it's not just to detonations that we might think of, like breaching a door. It's also the high-powered firearms. Um, there's a recoilless rifle that um, a lot of guys are using that um, is apparently causing a lot of stress on the brain. It's just this constant accumulation. And the third thing is that there's no interruption for it at any point. Um, we are just figuring out that this might be a problem or that this is a problem. So there's no early interventions at this point. Um, and a lot of the symptoms of operator syndrome, such as relationship dysfunction, we see super high divorce rates among special operators, has been chalked up to operator culture for decades. But what if it's not operator culture? What if this is cause that's a downstream effect of all of these initial issues of allostatic load and uh, blast TBI and then no interruption for it? And the fascinating thing about operator syndrome, the paper came out after I was already done collecting data on my research. And during my data collection, during all those background interviews I did, the SEALs that I was talking to were describing these exact symptoms. And I was looking in research literature and couldn't figure out what was going on. And I was wondering if I, like, am I, there's no way I'm like discovering this, but like, am I the first one to collect data on this? Like how, how is nobody talking about this? How is it that's not already out there? And then this operator paper came out 
And I will tell you that I talked to more SEALs in a shorter amount of time than they did for that specific paper. And so my data validated this paper. And it's just sort of this fascinating, but yes, it it is operators are describing it. It's real. Um, and a bunch of us are working on how to how to interrupt it, how to interrupt the process. Beautiful. Well, first he's allostatic, not allopathic. So let me correct myself on that. I think allopathic is what regular medicine or irregular, depending how you look at it. Um, with the the scarring, uh, I just actually watched that uh, film Concussion. I'm going to see if I can reach out to the the doctor in that film, the real one. But I had um, uh, the widows of David Metcalf and Chad Wilkinson on here. Both, you know, had the post mortem done, and they were they were showing the scarring. So a very real thing. What worries me, and I'm sure so many first responders listening to this are hearing the same thing, what you described in that umbrella is exactly what responders are going through as well. They are probably not getting the micro traumas the same way that a special operations operator would. Um, a lot of us have hobbies that do that. I mean, I got punched in the face for many years. Um, I'm not very good at it, so I kept getting hit. Um, but also, to me, it's a sleep deprivation. When you look at the impact of sleep deprivation on the brain, you have the myelin sheath breakdown, from what I understand, the same way as you do from a concussive impact. So you take these men and women that maybe aren't getting hit or explosions next to them, but they're not sleeping every third day for 10, 20, 30 years. And you have the exact same thing, the anger, the weight gain, the chronic diseases, the lack of acuity. I mean, the very things that you listed. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think ultimately, and this is my guess, this is not, you know, based in hard data. Um, we do know that operator syndrome has something to do with a disruption in the HPA axis, axis in the brain. So the HPA axis controls a lot of your endocrine stuff, your sleep stuff, your emotions, things like that. Um, which is sort of part of the blast TBI situation. But there is no doubt that that allostatic overload is having a significant degrading effect on the brain. And it could be the same thing. It could be a very, yeah, same process, similar process. Now, I heard you talking to um, Stu about TRT. I just kind of want to bring this out because what what I'm seeing is, is two roads. You have the people that have got this kind of brain trauma where they are not making their own um, endogenous testosterone anymore. And so the hormone replacement therapy is essential to get these these men, in this case, um, back to where they need to be. Simultaneously, we talked about predatorial nursing. I see predatorial exogenous testosterone going on, targeting a lot of the people that if they went and got blood work and then looked at their nutrition, their exercise, their sleep, they would be able to self-rectify without any exogenous testosterone. So if, you know, if, if it's somewhere you feel comfortable talking, what what is the difference between the need for TRT and some of these operators versus maybe some of the things that are being told in the civilian population? That is a great question because actually this is something that people have contacted me about on my Instagram page because I talk about TRT. Um, so TRT for operators, we're talking about brain trauma and all of the, like basically all the apparatus, all the... Um, all the things that control your testosterone are basically in your brain. Okay. So if you have a brain injury that affects your ability to make testosterone and self-regulate your testosterone, generally the only way to fix that is 
to get supplementation. A lot of other things can affect your testosterone. For SEALs and for special operators, we could try to fix their sleep. We could try to fix lots of things, but those things might not get fixed without the testosterone. For lifters, for folks who, you know, don't have such active jobs, you know, people who might sit behind a desk for eight hours a day, if they have low testosterone, there could be lots of causes for that. It's probably, it's not operator syndrome. It's probably not a disruption in their brain unless they've experienced a brain injury. So that's the difference. Um, For me, you know, if I, you know, or you, if you had low testosterone, well, you're kind of a bad example because you're a paramedic and first responder and all of that. But if, you know, say an accountant came to me and had low testosterone, yeah, we would talk about all of those other things, nutrition, sleep, um, all of it, right. Before we go to supplementation, whereas with an operator, we're going to go to supplementation if they are okay with that. Yeah, well, actually, you said for me an example. I transitioned out of the fire service four years ago now, um, and ironically, I had blood work done around that time. I had a knee knee surgery, so I was in a lot of pain, wasn't sleeping really well, and if I remember rightly, my my test was still five something. Um, I just had blood work done. Uh, when was it now? Less than a year ago, and at that moment, and obviously, it does vary day to day. It was in the seven hundreds. The only yeah. thing that I'd done is actually slept in my own bed every. So this is someone who has got punched in the head, who has worked shift work for you know fourteen years, and I was able to maintain it somewhat through the wellness area that I obviously was you know very familiar with, but also improve on it once I fixed the things that were out of my control in the fire service. So I think it's an important message. You can absolutely do it, and once you've exhausted those and it's still not working. The exogenous testosterone is clearly a tool you can use. But what I'm seeing is that now these clinics that are charging so much money are saying, oh, no, I looked at the scale. No, yours is low. You need to take this with no discussion on how you know to try these other things first. And also the, the side note, hey, just so you know, your testes will stop making anything because now you're getting this. And so if if you absolutely need it, that's not of that much of a concern. But for the average person, you're going to be on testosterone for the rest of your life now. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, exactly. Two totally different situations um, between operators and, you know, the civilian population. And a lot of it has to do with why did you start acquiring this testosterone deficiency? You know, if we want to treat the problem, which as a nurse, that's that's what I'm trained to do, deal with it, the issue at hand, um, is, you know, is it because of your lifestyle or because of literally what you do that you cannot control factors you can control versus not. So absolutely. In fact, the person that connected us, Jeff Nichols, I mean, he swears by thorn supplements who actually sponsor the show as well. I swear by them. They're sponsoring the seven X project that I'm doing with a bunch of, uh, seals and Delta guys as well. But, you know, Jeff obviously had, you know, numerous blast injuries. He was, you know, SEAL Team 6, he won't say it, but he was. Um, and, uh, you know, so there is that legitimate thing, but he's still owning the strength and conditioning and nutrition side on top of his, you know, supplementation. So for the average person who hasn't been exposed to those, con- you know, micro traumas and concussions, then still listen to what Jeff Knuckles is saying because all the supplements that he takes will help you immensely as well. 
Yeah, for operators, um, sometimes we need to supplement their testosterone and get that going in order for them to fix their sleep and other things. I think that's like really big um, take home here for civilians who are listening to this and thinking about testosterone uh, supplementation that for operators, it's different because we sometimes need to do the supplementation in order to fix the other things. Whereas with civilians, generally they can fix the other things to some extent before they receive supplementation. Absolutely. All right. Well, I would love to go to some closing questions if you've got time. So the first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. I've listened to some of your podcasts and I've heard this question come up, but I did not prepare. Let me think on that. (laughs) We go to another question and come back to that one. Absolutely. What about movie and or documentary? Oh, man. If you haven't seen Navy Seals with Charlie Sheen in it, you need to watch it. 100 that's a documentary oh absolutely (laughs) a documentary word for word another great movie is called the frogmen and it's an old movie and from um can't remember whether it was korea it might have been korea it's fascinating and it's the forerunners of navy seals and there's just a fascinating look at the navy what was the navy at that time Brilliant. All right. Well, thank you. Um, The next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Chris Free. You have already covered all the other people I would recommend, I think, at this point. But Chris Free is the person who's the first author on the um, operator syndrome paper. Beautiful. And he can really speak to operator syndrome. Brilliant. Okay. If you're able to connect me with him. I can. I would be happy to. That would be amazing. All right. Thank you so much. All right. So the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what do you do to decompress? Oh, man. So powerlifting comes to mind first. However, I think the thing that I do much more often than that is I actually sew. And I crochet and do some of, we talked about my life with my um, great aunts and great uncles and sort of my childhood things. You know, I grew up crocheting and sewing from the time I was about three years old and I'm 41 now. So I continue to do those things. Those are like my comfort things, Um, long walks, hikes, things like that. Now with that, speaking of, you know, a mental health practitioner for a second, what is your your gauge? Because you're absorbing so much, even even doing this. I mean, some of the stories I've had on here, are, you know, are very very powerful. And I find that even just as a podcaster, I have to you know check in sometimes. What do you use to kind of monitor that? And are there any other tools you use to to kind of off gas that particular element? Yeah. So when I was in grad school, I think the best piece of advice I received from my professors, they told all of us in the program during class one day that we need to find our own therapist. So I found my own therapist. I see a therapist every other week, every third week, um, basically as often as I can. Uh, She doesn't know anything, any particulars about any of my patients, but that's a really big one. Um, I learned pretty quickly while I was doing all those background interviews with the SEALs before I even started my project um, that I was going to hear things that were very heavy and I needed to find ways 
to take those things from the person I was speaking with and put them down. Because not only is it not my responsibility to carry them, but if I carried everyone's thing, heavy things, you know, I couldn't do this job. Um, So working with a therapist really helps me figure out how to put some of those heavy things down. And I do see some civilians and the folks that I see, um, I kind of, I specialize in really profound trauma. So I hear some things and um, that's, it's a skill that you have to develop over time. It's really unfortunate, (laughs) but um, you know, working with a therapist has been very helpful. Also um, learning more. So one of the uh, therapies that I can provide patients is called DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. And I use a lot of concepts from DBT, including mindfulness and mindfully changing my own mind, mindfully changing my frame of reference, mindfully walking out of my office and saying, I'm leaving the office in this space. And now I'm in my home space. Those are really the main tools that I use, but practice, practice, practicing those skills. I'm not perfect at them at this point, but. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Cause again, if that's something people don't think about, obviously they think of us out there seeing and doing the things that we do, but, um, I got an insight into, you know, the the accumulation of these stories and, and a need to kind of reset and step away sometimes and like you said at the beginning set boundaries even for your own um absorption i guess yeah yeah boundaries are really important self boundaries are really important um and deciding what information i'm going to take with me is really important because i want people you know when these guys were calling me um during the background interviews, they would call me and say things to me. Like, I heard I can talk to you. I heard I can, I can talk to you about stuff. And when conversations started that way, usually the caller would be very emotional within about five minutes and figuring out how I could get through those conversations, um, with those guys, um, and listen actively and understand and give them my understanding and compassion and care um, and not leaving the conversation with what they had shared was very challenging for me. And it was around that time when I learned in grad school that we should all have our own therapist. It was like, I got you. I'm on that. <laughs> I'm finding something. <laughs> you get it now. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, for people listening, where are the best places to find you online and on social media? So my website is tacticalpsychiatry.com. Um, you can also find me on Instagram as Tactical Psychiatry. Those are the two very best places. Um, you can get into contact with me through my website, through email. I'm Rebecca at tacticalpsychiatry.com. Um, but really Instagram and the website or if you want more information. I also have a ton of information about operator syndrome on my website. So if people would like to read more, including some of the sort of, you know, the original operator syndrome paper and some of the follow-on papers, um, I found free sources. And so they are posted links 
on my website. Beautiful. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. It's it's always so exciting starting these conversations. I knew obviously the the research that you did with the seals specifically, but had no idea we we're going to talk about CrossFit and rowing and some of the other areas. So I just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Thank you for having me. This is an honor. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm looking forward to putting you in contact with Dr. Free. He is awesome. And anything else I can do, please just let me know. 